The following sermon was delivered on September 27, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial Assistant Zachary Groff delivered this sermon on Jeremiah 46, 25-28, entitled The Gospel of Grace in the Dust of Nations. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. Now may the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, as I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are aware, this might be news to some of the children, there have been... Horrendous, horrific fires consuming the left coast for weeks now. And I think that um, they've been mostly contained. But one of the most distressing sites of the fire in terms of national heritage was Big Basin Redwoods uh, National Park in Santa Cruz, California. You might have seen the headline in August and then some follow-up reports even throughout this month that trees that make these big old trees out here look tiny by comparison. But these massive redwood trees were being threatened by fires started by nothing less than lightning from heaven. In fact, in one of the articles I read today, as I was thinking through this illustration and it was getting an update, they called these fires the lightning fires because they were sparked by 10,000 lightning bolts that struck the northern counties of California about a month or so ago at this point, maybe a little bit more than a month ago. And these mighty trees, estimated to be upwards of 2,000 years old, were being threatened, 300-foot trees about, being threatened to be turned into so many piles of dust and ash. Can you imagine? I mean, we we come out here on the doors or when you drive in and, and park your cars, you see these these ancient trees, as it were, right out here on, on the grounds of Antioch Presbyterian Church. And I can't imagine what it would look like out here without even just those few massive trees. But they, too, are susceptible to the flame. And how much more are these massive trees in California? What does this have to do with Jeremiah and our passage tonight? Well, Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, was to be a prophetic instrument in the Lord's hands, either to build up or to tear down nations. The Lord says to him, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And then that call is developed a few chapters later in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14, where God says to Jeremiah in response to the rebelliousness of the people of Israel, he says, Behold, I myself am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. Jeremiah has a sober calling to be a fire-breathing prophet. He puts the fire and fire and brimstone against God's rebellious covenant people. And we see that throughout his prophecy. We see judgment after judgment, not just against Israel, but against the surrounding nations. However, we also see, as in our text today, judgment running up against mercy and comfort and encouragement and goodness in God's sovereignty. And so what we're going to do tonight as we unpack these these few verses out of Jeremiah chapter 46, what I hope to do is to remind you of a great comforting but sobering reality. And that is that God who is sovereign over all nations is sovereign over your salvation. God who is sovereign over all nations 
is sovereign over your salvation. And we'll consider this under those two headings. First, that God is sovereign over all nations. See that in verses 25 and 26. And then God is sovereign over your salvation in verses 27 and 28. And that's where we get the sermon title from, the gospel of grace. We can even say the gospel of sovereign grace in the dust of nations, in the dust of nations. First, God is sovereign over all nations. And the text presents us in two ways. He's sovereign in judgment, and that much is abundantly clear. But he's also sovereign in mercy, as we see in the second half of verse 26. A bit surprising. First, let us consider how he is sovereign in judgment. First, what is he judging? According to the text, if you look at verse 25, our God, the Lord of hosts, he who commands angel armies, the God of Israel, he who commands the destiny of his covenant people, who is eternally, immutably, unchangeably sovereign, he says, behold, I am going to punish Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh in Egypt along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. This is significant. Ammon of Thebes. Thebes was in Upper Egypt, which is uh, Southern Egypt. It's called Upper because of the elevation. It's a bit higher. Uh, just like I can say, being from Philadelphia, I went up to Greenville. It might not make much sense looking at a map, but if you look at a topographical map, you see I go up to Greenville because it's 800 feet uh, altitude, whereas Philadelphia is down near sea level. Anyway, you go up into Upper Egypt, and the capital city is the city No in Hebrew and in ancient Egyptian, but here in our text translated Thebes, and it is the modern city of Thebes. And that capital city has a patron god named Ammon. And then when Egypt later on in its history would unite as a united kingdom, you would have the god Ammon-Ra signified by a red disc or the sun. And God is saying specifically that he is going to judge Egypt, causing Nebuchadnezzar to defeat them along the Euphrates, and then also causing Nebuchadnezzar to invade Egypt and defeat them there. He's going to judge them. Why? Because of Ammon of Thebes. It literally says, behold, I am going to punish or bring punishment to Ammon of Thebes. And then he proceeds, and upon Pharaoh, and upon Egypt, and upon her gods, and upon her kings, and upon Pharaoh, and upon those who trust in him. So you have this series, this list. And at the beginning of it is their patron God. But then in the middle of it, very significantly, is their gods repeated. And so when we ask ourselves, God who is sovereign over the nations in judgment, what is it that he comes to judge? The answer is abundantly clear. He comes to judge idolatry. He comes to judge false worship. Children, you know your Ten Commandments, I'm sure. What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. These words before me in the first commandment teach us that God who sees all things takes notice of and is much displeased with the sin of what? Having any other God. And that is thrust to the foreground here. This mighty empire, this, this seemingly everlasting dynasty of Egypt, the greatest power the world had ever known up to Jeremiah's days, just in terms of sheer conquest and dominance. It was going to come crashing down for ultimately one reason. Idolatry. False worship. Putting their trust in a God other than the one true and living God. 
Now, according to God's solemn decree, this punishment would come. So we've asked what he's going to do. He's going to judge him for idolatry. But why? Because he's decreed it so. I've already mentioned the form of that verse 25, where you have, um, it's not reflected in the English, but in the Hebrew, you have a repetition of upon this, upon that, upon, upon, upon. This is a formal, solemn, irrevocable decree. It would be uh, of much more lasting consequence than any executive order made by any United States president. This is a royal decree. Um, For the elders who are here tonight and for the seminary students, this will be relevant. You'll be familiar with this. In Presbyterianism, when you make uh, what in the ARP is called a, uh, a memorial and in the PCA is called an overture, what, the way you put it together is very formal language. You say, whereas such and such and whereas so and so and whereas this happened and whereas we believe this to be true and whereas the Bible says this, therefore be it resolved This should take place. This should happen. The General Assembly or the Presbytery should vote on this, that, or the other thing. And as someone who reads it, you know, you're used to reading the newspaper or or your books or whatever. You open up a document like that, and you read that kind of language, and you read it a bit more slowly. You read it a bit more deliberately. There's a weight to it. Even if you disagree with the resolution, there's seriousness there. It commands your attention. You must give it heed. Because it is a serious word. It is almost as if you got a letter from your mom or your dad and they decided to put a stamp on it saying, for your eyes only and no one else. If you saw that, you would open it up and you would be very careful to read what's inside. And old practice, and I think they still do it and for ceremonial purposes, but kings and rulers, dukes and earls and all of that stuff, They would seal their official letters and edicts with their signet ring. And they would only allow those whom they trusted to use that ring to represent them. That is the solemnity of God's decree. And so when we ask, why is it that God is going to do this to Egypt? What is it that's fueling this? It's his eternal sovereign decree. There's no turning from it. There's no shifting shadow. There's no change in God. But then how? And this is what grasped the attention of uh, the people of, uh, of God's covenant people, the people of Jacob, of Judah, of Israel, but also any Egyptians that heard this. This is what they would actually be worried about. They'd say, okay, how is this happening? How could we get out of it? And God tells them how it's going to happen. I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his servants or officers, his military officers. God will enact his decree by an overwhelming power. So as powerful as Egypt was, her chariots, her horsemen, her troops were nothing in comparison to Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel, I just read this this morning in um, the McShane Bible reading plan. Ezekiel chapter 30 and chapters 29 and 30 speak of this same event from a different perspective, from Ezekiel's perspective. And Ezekiel actually brings out for us that this particular handing over of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, it was payment. It was payment to Nebuchadnezzar for taking out other nations on behalf of God. God says, uh, the prophet says, God speaking through the prophet says, 
Uh, Nebuchadnezzar got nothing out of Tyre. They didn't have any, any uh, loot. They didn't have any gold or anything for him to take. So I'm going to give him Egypt as a prize. Why is this important to God's people of Israel? It's important because they fled to Egypt to get away from Nebuchadnezzar. So what effectively is happening is God is saying, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar all the way to southern Egypt. He's going to take over the whole thing. There's nowhere you can go. You should have stayed in Jerusalem like Jeremiah told you to do. This is your discipline, your punishment. We'll see in just a couple of verses. There's nowhere you or I can flee from God and his discipline and his punishment or even his vocation and his call. Likewise, there's nowhere we can run from his fatherly love and his tender mercies. How often do we do this? How prone are you to forget that God who allows all these confusing things to happen in the world around us and the flash up on newspapers and on TV shows and whatever That God who allows all those things for his inscrutable purpose is yet good and is pursuing you for your good and for his glory. Don't forget that, Christian. As the people, the remnant, the faithful remnant of Israel, as they hear these words of Jeremiah, they'll see a judgment against Egypt, yes. They'll see the power and might of Nebuchadnezzar. But behind all of it, what they're intended to see is the sovereign power and ultimately goodness, justice, and truth. Of God. And that's what I hope to impress upon you tonight, especially in our current moment where we have so many overwhelming things going on in our culture, in our society. We have the great task before us of of pursuing a mission work in a land with many churches and in a land with a lot of fear, people worried about coronavirus and this, that, or the other. We must be reminded that God is sovereign. We see that in his judgment, but then when we come to the second half of verse 26, we see it as well in his mercy. Look at verse 26 with me. Jeremiah says, afterwards, however, after this judgment upon Egypt, afterwards, however, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. He shows us that God who is sovereign in judgment over the nations is also sovereign in mercy. And and what does that mean? It means that the nations will be inhabited. Specifically, the language used there is, there shall be peace in Thebes. It's not just that people are going to live there, and when they write letters, they'll put on the return address, oh yeah, um, you know, 102 3rd Street, Thebes, Upper Egypt. No, it means they're going to dwell there and and thrive there and and have gardens and vineyards and irrigation and canals and all the things that they used to have because it will be inhabited in peace as in the days of old, as in the former glory of Egypt. Not that they will be idolaters. No, by no means, but that they will dwell in the fullness of of peace, which comes from God's hand. God gives this amazing promise to the people of Egypt. How does he do this? By restoration. But why does he do this? Can there be any peace where there is no worship of the true God? No. There can only be chaos. There can only be debauchery and degeneration where the worship of God is thrust out The worship of false gods comes in. We already know that from the text. We know it from our own experience. 
But God in Isaiah makes it very clear his purposes in performing this good mercy, this grace for the people of Egypt. Isaiah chapter 19, starting at verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Side note, Ezekiel uses that same language in talking about judgment. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Brothers and sisters, this sermon is about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And it is as much about the evangelization of the nations. Look here at God's promise to Egypt. It's alluded to in verse 26b, but it's fleshed out by Isaiah, that great prophet of the gospel, that God will make of heathen, idolatrous nations a people for himself. He remarkably says in that text that they will return to him. They will return to him. They will worship with sacrifice and offering and make a vow. They will perform acts of public worship to God in the land. It's as if they're renewing covenant, but they've never had covenant with him before. But that's the level of intimacy that God is saying here. The promise of mercy to this idolatrous heathen nation, which God has now intended for worship. Oh, Praise be to the mercy of God. Praise be to the glorious, matchless grace of God. What Paul remarks on at the end of Romans 11. The great mystery of God's purposes among all the nations. What we read in Ephesians chapter 2 and we'll return to in a bit. Of breaking down the barriers that exist between nations that are at odds with one another. And just as a side note, how we need that in our land today. How we need that in this country today. We're not feeling it quite as acutely or presently here in Greenville or in South Dakota. But certainly when we flip on the news, and uh, my boss right now is in Portland area, and that's a hotbed. Uh, Seattle, in my hometown of Philadelphia, in, uh, in places like New York and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, and even a bit in Charlotte and uh, in, a, in Atlanta, Kenosha, Wisconsin. You ever heard of that city before this year? No. In all of these places, we see the divisions between people. And we wonder, how in the world can can these people be brought together? And you have different politicians from a variety of parties saying, I can do it. I will do it. I promise to do it. It will be me. It will be me. It will be me. If you vote for me, I'll bring peace. If you don't vote for me, it's going to be more rioting. All of them. Liars. The only one 
who can bring peace and reconciliation between man and man is he who brings peace and reconciliation between God and man. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, that Savior, that Comforter, that mighty Conqueror of whom we sang earlier in our service and of whom we've read in the passages brought to the fore tonight. And now, having seen God sovereign all, over all nations in judgment and in mercy, we ask, if God would be so merciful to Egypt, this idolatrous heathen kingdom which has bewitched and exploited the people of Israel, how much more graciously shall he deal with his own? Covenant community. I speak not only of Israel in our text, but I speak of you and I speak of me. How graciously will God deal with Antioch Presbyterian Church, with Woodruff Road, with Reedville, with Palmetto Hills, with Devonshire Road, with any of our churches? How gracious will God be to us? Our text answers that question. For we see that God, who is sovereign over all nations, is also sovereign over your salvation for your good and his glory both in deliverance and then in communion with him. Look at verse 27 with me. He says this promise, but as for you, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for see, I am going to save you from afar and your descendants from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and be undisturbed and secure with no one causing him to tremble or making him tremble, causing him to fear. We see here in this verse, God's promise to deliver his people. And we know that it's grounded upon his decree as sovereign Lord and matchless king, that he will do it, that he will save them from where? From afar, from their exile, from their alienation, from their being pushed out of the land, from their own rebellious hearts. They, they fled the land when he told them to stay. And he says, after I cast you far away, even into the land of Babylon, I will bring you back. And you're saying, well, Zach, how do you know it's Babylon? This promise is actually a repeat. He's already given this promise. These, these two verses appear in Jeremiah chapter 30 after God tells them that according to his threatenings in Deuteronomy, he will cause them to be exiled from the land. He will bring them into captivity. But... He will restore the tents of Jacob. He will bring them back. They will dwell in the land once more. And here he's reminding them, even though you fled after a foreign nation with its foreign gods, and even though I will punish you for that, I will bring you back. I will deliver you. I'm sovereign over that. Why? Because he has decreed it so. Look at the first half of 28. He says, declares the Lord. It's the same language as was used at the end of verse 26, declares the Lord. It's not merely God says. It's actually more formal than that. It's declaration of Jehovah, declaration of the covenant-keeping God. It's a very common phrase that comes at the end of prophecies. And again, this is God stamping his seal on what he said, saying nothing will change this. This is a royal decree a sovereign declaration of my grace and my mercy. Just as surely as he will cause Egypt to fall before the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, he will cause Jacob, my servant, to come back, to dwell in the midst of the land. And through what? We see here your descendants from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return and be undisturbed and secure with no one making him tremble. There are two pieces here. The first is this return language. 
When Jeremiah and Isaiah use that language of returning, there is a sense of physical returning, but there's this this heavier spiritual sense of renewing covenant with God, returning to God. Imagine, if you will, husbands and wives, an estranged son or daughter going off into the far country. You don't hear from him or her for months, years, maybe even decades. And then one day, you go to the front door, and there he is. He has returned. Is his physical return what was really important there? Certainly that's significant. But it's what that signifies. It's what that represents. Your son has returned. He's come back. He's he's opened up communication with you again. And in fact, it's all the more sweet when he says, I was wrong. I want a relationship with you. We were uh, praying in in chapel at the seminary this past week for that very situation to take place. As a a godly, uh, believing uh, man, one of our our students, I think great uncles, he uh, is on his deathbed and he's been estranged from his daughter for many years. And we prayed that they would have a measure of reconciliation. Because we heard that she was planning to go see her dad. What a sweet reunion that would be. I mean, of course, as long as it doesn't blow up in some kind of family drama. But what you hope for is this, this sweet saying, you know, I wanted to say goodbye. And I also wanted to say hello again. I wanted to return to you. That's what's happened in our text today. Jacob will return. And what, and, and what does that return give birth to But nothing less than assurance of God's love, of security in the presence of God. He will return and not be anxious. He will return and not be nervous in the presence of God. He will return and not be fearful or worried, but he will return and be undisturbed, grounded and secure with no one causing him to fear ever again. This is the promise of the gospel The promise of the gospel to us. Note what our Westminster Confession of Faith says about saving faith. The mechanism by which we return to God. This is what it says. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. And acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains giving obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting. Resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. In other words, The principal acts of saving faith is marked, is evidenced by a holy rest upon Jesus Christ. Throwing yourself upon him. What the Puritans said, rolling yourself upon Jesus Christ. There is no other. There's no one else that gives that sense of security. A few of you know this. I was in a, a Christian rock band in high school. And one of our songs... Uh, a little ditty, kind of, real upbeat. But the lyric was significant. The lyricist was really good, my friend Ben. I have a false sense of insecurity. I am secure. And then it was something like, I forget the rest, but it was something like, 
I have the greatest God in the whole world defending me as my father. And, and that message, I, I never got tired of playing that song. And that was one of our, that was one of our fan favorites. Because isn't that, isn't that a balm to the soul? Isn't that what you and I need to hear so often to be reminded of again and again? When life is difficult, when, when we get nervous, when we get anxious, to be reminded, wait, wait, rest upon the goodness of God. It's a situation God's people were in here. They were just told that this nation that they trusted in would be utterly destroyed. There'd be no refuge there. And they're thinking, oh man, what's going to happen to us? And God says, do not fear nor be dismayed. For you will return and be undisturbed and secure. God is sovereign over his people, over your salvation in deliverance. But then we ask, delivered to what? We've intimated this, to restfulness, to security, to peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase in grace, perseverance therein to the end. But specifically, what God highlights for us in verse 28 here, what Jeremiah highlights for us, reminds us of, is that they were delivered out of exile back into relationship, fellowship, communion with the triune God in Jesus Christ. It's the situation reflected for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. I'll read that again to remind you of it. It was from our New Testament reading. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. There's no place like home. And what God is saying is that you and I, we are being built even now into his home in which he will dwell. And we will have that intimate fellowship with him of day by day walking with Jesus Christ. That great Baptist hymn, oh, for a closer walk with Jesus. That is what is promised to us of friendship and mercy, of of being adopted as sons and daughters into God's household. And you see what is highlighted here. Oh, Jacob, my servant, again, he says, do not fear declaration of Yahweh, for I am with you. To be present with God, to have God with you, with us, is to be free from worldly fear. It's a zero-sum proposition that God makes. There's no room for fear of anything else when God is with you. There's no room for fear of Democrats or Republicans, of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. There's no room for fear of poverty or sickness or anxiety or woe. There's no room for fear of anything other than a holy, reverent, godly fear of God himself, who is your tender and loving father. This is the message of Christ and the gospel. This is why he came. As we confessed earlier, um, quoting Athanasius, we praise you that he was born like us, that we might become like him. And what was the mark of Jesus' divinity? Nothing less than full unity with the Father. 
sharing in the same substance, equal in power and glory, having his holiness, having uh, no, nothing barring his access to God. And that's the point at which we are made like him. Every obstacle barring our relationship to God is broken down in Jesus Christ. We're not made gods, but we are made holy as Jesus is holy. We are made righteous as Jesus is righteous, that we might enjoy fellowship with the Father as the Son enjoys fellowship with the Father. (laughs) Praise be to God. That casts out all darkness and fear in his unapproachable light. How so? By God's presence, by his Spirit, working through his word. He says, I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you, yet I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you properly and by no means leave you unpunished. This promise of God, a promise of his word, a very declaration, is then coming to us by scripture, the Holy Spirit applying it to our hearts even now. And that is the mechanism by which God draws us into communion with himself. It's called effectual calling in our in our confession. And what is effectual calling? The shorter catechism. Effectual calling is a work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That is what God does through the ministry of the word. That's why it's so important to be in, and, uh, in, in corporate worship and to be seated under the reading and preaching of God's word. Because it is through that means that our minds are renewed. You know, there there are plenty of of good, debatable, somewhat decent Christian movies out there now. Uh, Or no, no, some good Christian movies. Those aren't going to renew your mind. The Spirit may use them to convict you of particular sins here and there and, and cause you to be passionate for Christ. But the best that they can do is to drive you before God in his word and in prayer. And through those means, God renews the mind. It's a great benefit of family worship. You know, children, I know it can seem boring sometimes when you're seated around the dinner table or you're waking up early in the morning and dad says, okay, everybody, we're going to open up the Bible and we're going to read together. And moms and dads, I know it can be frustrating, especially with little two-year-olds and three-year-olds to try to do that day in and day out and be consistent. But the benefits of it are innumerable, incalculable. This is so important. Get 18 years to do it for each kid. The Hams get like 30 years to do that. Um, but the time is fleeting. And with the time that we have, let us set our, the word before our children that their minds would be awash and in their hearts aglow with the presence of the Spirit as we pray and seek for God to fulfill his promises. And then why? Why does God do this? Why does he draw them out of exile and deliver them back into communion with him, I will correct you properly. I will, it's literally, discipline you with just administration or rightly. I will discipline you accordingly. He's a wise father. You know, dads, I know, because I face this every day, if not every hour. Discipline is really hard to know what exactly to do, to know how, how much to demand of your children, how, how lenient to be. God doesn't face those difficulties. He's perfectly wise. He is eternal wisdom. 
He is truth and glory and goodness. And he knows everything. He can see into the hearts of each of us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows how to render right discipline. And he says so right here. But not only that, he's good. And he promises by no means to leave you unpunished. This is not a threatening as much as it is a great blessing from God. I will shape you and mold you to be more like my son after whom you have been called. For God as a loving father righteously exercises discipline for his people's good and spiritual maturity all to his glory. And now we see here that there's no get out of jail free card. There's no... um, There's no prosperity gospel kind of nonsense that life's going to be easy peasy and coasting and and hey, God's your father. So you can have a Mercedes. Well, Mercedes is not not even a big deal anymore. You can have a Maserati or an Aston Martin or something or a rocket ship. You you can have whatever you want. No, there's none of that. There is still scarring in this life. Think back to those redwood trees at Big Basin Redwood uh, National Park in uh, California. One of the interesting notes that I I jotted down as I was reading about these trees, and part of the reason I was so interested is I'm selfish, and I've never been there, and so I was really worried they're all going to burn down. I want to see them first. Uh, But but one of the notes that I I took there, uh, or I took down while reading about them, is that there's evidence, even hundreds of feet in the air, of, of past trials and tribulations in these trees. The mother redwood in the, in the old growth grove, it had, she had actually broken off about 30 feet down from the canopy and it had fallen. And so she's a little bit shorter than she once was and you could see where the break is. And you could see in the bark and in the rings of, of trees when they fall, you could see black lines where there was you know, fungus or algae or, or fires. And then on other trees, you can see scarring where, where deer, you know, sharpen their antlers on the trees or, or kids, you know, etch, you know, hearts and initials of high school sweethearts into these things. There are scars that get put into the bark of trees. And just like those trees, you and I will bear many scars in this life. Now, unlike the trees, our scars will be eradicated in glory. And the only man with scars in heaven, in paradise, will be the Lord Jesus Christ to remind us that because of him, we bear no scars. And all has been made well, and there are no tears in heaven because of what he has suffered on our behalf. I'll have you know that at this point, reports indicate that the trees, the old growth, has survived. 85,000 acres in that national park have burned. But the most ancient of the trees are left standing, as far as the park rangers can tell. Now, their whole like um, visitor center thing burned down. It's going to take about a year for them to open up again. But um, I'm thankful that this piece of our national heritage has been preserved, to the best of my knowledge, at this point. It's interesting to note that they could be threatened again. They could yet bear more scars. But that's really of little consequence to you and to me, not least of which because we live thousands of miles away from that place. But one question we might ask, having seen this passage, having considered what the people of Israel, my servant Jacob, is about to go through, one thing we can ask is, what scars do we bear now? What stories are you telling now to your children and even your grandchildren? Not only of your trials, but of how God has carried you through them. How God has been gracious to you. How God has assured you of his love and vindicated his goodness to you. 
Boys and girls, ask your mom and your dad and your grandparents, your believing grandparents, about those things. Ask them, how has God worked in your life? And listen closely to the testimonies of God's goodness and his mercy and his grace. And when you're a little bit older, I challenge you, if you have unbelieving family members, ask them about the challenges they've been through in their lives. And just keep up the stories and note how different the accounts are. And you want set before you a godly example, one of thankfulness and gratitude and peace, as we've expressed throughout our worship service tonight. You're not too young to recognize, even now, that God, who is sovereign over all the nations, over everything going on in the news and and in your communities, that he is likewise sovereign over your salvation. And that he is committed to building you up as a godly seed. And not just you children, but also your moms and your dads and the grandparents here. The men and women, my brothers and my sisters. God is fully sold out committed to building you up in grace and godliness unto his glory. And we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in his wisdom and that he promises to do it without any error. To do it rightly with just administration. As we've seen, he is sovereign over all nations in judgment and in mercy. And he's sovereign over his uh, people and particularly over your salvation and deliverance and in communion. You can remember that throughout this week, I hope, and even return to the passage and see how that works out. And most importantly, he is committed to dwell with you and cause you to dwell with him. What was reversed in Eden as a result of man's sin, God is now, even now, has And is continuing to work out the change to bring us back. So don't waste this moment in our national and your personal histories. You know, I chose this passage as an occasional sermon because I'm not doing a series. Dr. Piper will return to uh, 1 Timothy next week. But I chose this passage because it highlights the sovereignty of God, both in difficult things, but also in in his goodness, in his comfort, in his encouragement. And so as we go through what promises to be another rip-roaringly entertaining and perhaps frightful few weeks leading up to November 3rd and to the end of the year, as we go through that, seek truth and shelter where it may be found in Christ himself, in no other. He promises to lead you into all truth. He will sustain you as you sustain wounds and bear scars along the way. But he alone can and will remove them in the resurrection for he's sovereign over all nations and he's sovereign over your salvation to perfect you in glory when you shall see him face to face. And hold forth that promise even this week as you go through your schooling and your work and your ministry and your labors. Do not fear the times for they are in his hands. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.